you don't need to leave it here. But uh, jumping back in our series in the book of Romans in uh, chapter 13 here this morning, uh, the series title is called Made Right, and I share this with you almost every week because I can't make myself right, nor can you with Jesus. It was Jesus made us right with him by coming and living a perfect sinless life and dying upon the cross and rising again from the dead on the third day, just as he declared and by placing our hope and our trust in him is how we're made right. It's not by works, which any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Amen. And our prayer and our hope today is that you have received that gift. And if you haven't, we would love to talk with you at the end of the service and pray with you, help you take those, those next steps in that journey of faith. Um, I titled this morning's message in Romans chapter 13. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 7 here this morning. I titled it, God, the Government, and You. And I, I had to laugh this week, you know, sometimes... Uh, you know, as I'm studying for a, a specific text that we're just in, um, something happens in the world that day. You know, some people say it's coincidental. I say that it's God's divine providence. Amen. And just how God, when he wants us to talk about something that's on his heart, he just makes sure that it comes to the forefront. And Romans chapter 13 uh, talks about government. And, you know, we have something obviously to kind of celebrate if you've been watching uh, the events in Washington, D.C. this past week. Our own Kevin McCarthy was uh, uh, elected after how many, how many was it? 15. 15, you know, uh, elections, different uh, voting elections for the Speaker of the House was finally elected to Speaker of the House. And that's a pretty amazing thing when you think about that. You know, that, like you said, a son of a fireman, uh, you know, here from Kern County, graduated from Cal State Bakersfield. And went on to serve as an assemblyman, and then here he is, you know, now the uh, third in, in rank to uh, the president uh, of the United States. If the president was uh, unable to carry out the oath of office and the vice president wasn't, it would fall on uh, the Speaker of the House, and so that puts him in a very powerful, prominent position. And, and I can tell you this, I mean, Bakersfield is on a map now, um, that you don't necessarily want to be on. You know, have you ever, you ever had that conversation with people where they say, like, if you're visiting family at the holidays, and they go, there's only two things that you don't bring up when you visit relatives over the holidays. What are those two things? What? Yes, religion and politics, you know. Religion and politics. And... I have heard Bakersfield mentioned more on the news in the last few days, and some of it was in a positive light. I just grew up remembering watching Johnny Carson, if you remember Johnny Carson, and every time Johnny Carson mentioned Bakersfield, it was, you know, it was in a joke. It was always, you know, making fun of Bakersfield, you know, that people came to Bakersfield because they either got a flat tire or they were on the back of a tow truck. You know, that was really the only reason that you would come here as a destination spot, you know, or something that, um, you know, or every high speed chase in Southern California ended where? In Bakersfield, you know, yeah. So it, it always had these negative connotations and some of that has, has come out again this past week. But you know, I look at this and, and like I said, um, the topic of, of politics, you know, and our responsibility obviously uh, is going to be heating up, you might say, 
uh, more and more in the days ahead, and, and, and some because just the fact that, like I said, with Kevin McCarthy being elected as Speaker of the House and our, the name of Bakersfield you know, being brought up more and more, um, you know, people will begin to ask more questions. And so uh, I, I can't think of a better time for us to be looking at this text. I didn't pick it. Some would say, gosh, you know, that's a great topical message, you know, for the Sunday after, you know, this craziness, you know, of this uh, past election of the Speaker of the House. But it's just what the Lord, you know, had in store for us. And so um, we'll take a moment here and let's pray together and then we'll jump into this. And Father God, we, we want to thank you for this morning. We thank you for a new year. And there is so much to be thankful for. Thank you that even as, as crazy as things can be in the United States of America, it's still the best country uh, on this earth uh, to live in. Uh, to think that we, we still uh, are practicing, uh, you think of a, a, a republic and, and a democracy and, and the things that, uh, Lord, allow for us to have a say in the things that go on in our country today. We're blessed by that. And, and we have a, a responsibility as, as Christians, as believers, as to um, how we respond to government and those that are in authority. Uh, it can be challenging in moments like this. And so, Lord, we need to learn. Um, God, we need to grow. Uh, oftentimes, we need to repent. And Lord, as I read this, uh, I'm, I'm reminded afresh why the book of Romans is attached to, to revival in the church so much because we look at these things and, and in my flesh, I go, it's impossible to do these things. But yet I'm always reminded, Lord, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so we look to you today, not only to teach us, but to empower us, to strengthen us, to be the people of God that you desire us to be. Uh, Lord, there's so many needs. Um, I think today we, we pray, um, you know, we pray for Chris today. We thank you for his life. Pray that you would bless this next year, um, that you would give him good health and uh, prosperity. Um, Lord, this last week has got news that uh, Karen Fields, uh, Karen and Bob have been part of our church family for many, many years, and Karen fell and broke her hip. And, and uh, Lord, thank you that the surgery went, went well and she's recovering. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you'd continue to bring healing uh, to her. Um, you know, so many, so many people with dealing with so many different uh, ailments and disease. Um, well, just I, th I think of Vanessa today and thank you for her and uh, thank you for the healing that you're bringing in her life. And um, I think of um, Pam Savage and, and so many more, Lord, that are that are dealing with health issues. And God, every week, though, just attribute um, God, just their well-being to the power of prayer that people pray. Uh, we think of what happened this last week in, in the NFL with DeMar Hamlin and an incident there on a football field where, you know, because of politics these last few years to, to kneel on a football field was to be an act of, of rebellion against the authority. And yet we saw all across our country this last week that people just immediately fell to their knees and began to pray, Lord, and to seek you. And uh, Lord, what a great opportunity it's been in our country to see the power of prayer. And uh, Lord, I pray for us as a church that as we move in more and more to this year, that we would be more committed to prayer than we ever have been for. Because Lord, the, the days require it. God, there, there's so much going on in the world, so much that can overwhelm us and cause us to be anxious and to be fearful. And so Lord, even this morning, we cast all of our cares upon you because you care about us. 
And Lord, we ask you to lead us and to guide us, like I said, to instruct us, to teach us today. That God, you would bring revival to the church. Uh, Lord, that, that's your desire, Lord. That any change, any good change that would ever happen in this world would first start in the church and make its way into the community around us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you today. We ask you, Lord, to have your way, to have your will as we pray in Jesus' name. We all agreed saying amen. Amen. So, you know, when you look at this, again, just for kind of going back a little bit here, we've not been in the book of Romans for a few weeks. And just to remind you, you know, the easiest way, you know, that I found to study this book is I just break it into four, you know, pretty simple pieces. Not, I'm not going to get into the exact verse because there is some some carryover from one chapter to the next. But in a simple breakdown, you could look at, you know, chapters one through three, deal with the wrath of God, if you recall that. And chapters four through eight, deal with, you know, the, the grace of God. And then we looked at chapters, you know, nine through 11, with regard to the nation of Israel and uh, specifically, and, you know, what is God's plan. And then it ends in, in chapters 13 through 16 to deal with the will of God. And that's where we find ourselves today. Is, is living in and walking in the will of God. And God has a will for my life and your life, and, and Paul expresses it here. But what's important to understand is it's not easy. <laughs> One of the things that, that we've come to understand, you know, going back to chapter 12, you know, in, just in how to love, how to love people. Um, it's virtually impossible in our flesh to fulfill the word of God, the will of God. And so Paul made it very clear. He said, you know, he reminded us, or if you remember in verses one and two, he said, you know, um, he said, I, I beseech you, you know, he says, I, I beseech you brethren. He said, by the mercies of God, he said, if you, if you remember anything, he's going to remember, you know, all that God has done for you, that we were sinners and that God saved us. And, and because of that, our reasonable act of worship, he said, the logical thing that we should do is to not be squeezed into this world's mold, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would dedicate ourselves to God's word and to his ways and to walk in the things, not just to be people who hear the word of God, and there's always that danger, who know, even know the word of God, but as James said, but to be people who do the word of God, who do the will of God. And that's really what these last chapters focus in on. And like I said, as I study it myself, I, I see, I go, God, I, I need revival. I need, I need you to revive me. I'm not saying that it's even you that needs it. I look at this and I go, this is impossible to love people in the sense the way that God loves people without. It's not impossible, you know, with God, but it's impossible without God. And that's why Paul is saying that. He said, then you put yourself on the altar. You give yourself completely to God as a living sacrifice and allow God to live, you could say, through you, live in you and through you, uh, as we shared, you know, just a few weeks ago, to, you know, minister, or touch, or change the world around you. And so, uh, again, you know, I, I'm reminded, you know, when I look at, you know, verses 1 and 2 there in, in Romans 12, let me read this for you, and he says, um, um, and so, dear brothers and sisters, he says, I plead with you, and I'm reading from the NLT translation. <clears throat> he says, to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. 
Don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So Paul, he just lays it out pretty straight there. You know, he says the only way that we can live in the will of God is to keep, as I've been sharing with you, keep Jesus between you and everything else. You know, I, I like that expression, play to an audience of one. And then do everything that we do as if what? We're doing it for Jesus himself. And if we just did that, you go, how would that change our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? Just thinking of that, you know, keep Jesus between you and everything else, play to an audience of one and do everything as if you were doing it only for Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about. And you go, and if you're doing that, and that's how you look at every decision of your life, then you go, bravo, stay with it. Keep running. If not, guess what? We need to repent. In that area of my life, it doesn't have to be every area of your life, but those areas of your life that aren't living in what? Submission to God to bring those to him. I like what theologian J.C. O'Neill wrote regarding the Christian's responsibility to government. You know, in the opening verses here in Romans chapter 13, in verses 1 through 7, he said, These seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the entire New Testament. And you think about that and you go, wow, why you? Well, maybe it's because of what Peter meant in 2 Peter 3 when he said, you know, some of the things that Paul wrote, he said, were hard to understand, right? And maybe it wasn't so much that it was hard to understand, that it was hard to accept. Because I think in the, my conversations when I talk with people, it's not that they don't understand it. It's kind of like what uh, Mark Twain once said, right? He goes, it's not the parts of the Bible that I you know, don't know that, that, you know, worry me. He said, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. You know, he said that give me the most trouble. And I think that that's true. So I think most people understand what Romans 13 is saying. It's they don't accept what Romans 13 is saying. It's not an issue really so much of understanding, but for the benefit of the doubt, let's walk through this and make sure that at least we have an understanding contextually of what the Apostle Paul was talking about here. Because I, I kind of, you know, I, I get it when people struggle, you know, with our government. You know, you think, you know, uh, sometimes we we'll use the term, you know, here's the million dollar question. And I thought some of you will pick this up. I said, no, that's the $1.7 trillion question, right? Uh, that people are asking today and they're struggling with. How does a Christian honor God when it comes to government? And I can't think of a better Sunday after all this, you know, to look at this in Scripture. And so let's read this together. And again, in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, it says, and I'm reading again from the NLT, it says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? He's asking that as a question. He says, do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. 
So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too. For these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone who you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Pretty simple when you lay it out there. So if you look at verse 1, you know, as you look there, it says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So again, you know, this is where the title you know, of the message comes from. You know, God, you, and government. You know, again, he just lays it out so, so clearly here that, you know, like I said, the problem isn't understanding God's will. It's accepting God's will. You know, and that's one of the reasons why we pray. What Jesus taught us to pray. How do we pray? Not my will, but what? But thine be done. It's, it's a relinquishing. It's a surrendering. It's a submitting to that, to the will of God for us. And so Paul here says, you know, everyone, you know, and, and you think, who's everyone? Who's everybody? Everybody. everybody. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't have to study the Greek language to go. Everyone means everyone. That's me. That's you. That's everyone in society. So, you know, it, it, and I look at this and, I, and I'm thinking, okay, people, they go, well, you know, Pastor Mike, you know, he can't understand, you know, Paul doesn't, isn't living in our day. You know, he's not going through what we're going through. How could Paul, you know, possibly relate to this? Well, I think you kind of need to understand the backstory a little bit to it. You know, if you think about, you know, in, in Rome, what was going on at that time? You know, Rome was in power, most of the world. It started off as a, as a republic and it ended up as a monarchy. Uh, you know, it became an, uh, um, what do I want to say? Autocracy. That's what I want to say. It became an autocracy. It became one person just in supreme power and some supreme control. And that one person in Paul's day was who? It was, it was Caesar. It was Caesar Nero. Caesar could do pretty much whatever he chose to do. Yeah, he had a Senate that was around him, but the Senate was uh, you know, pretty much uh, paid off by what we would call the lobbyists. Like if you were rich you know, in the days of Caesar, you could come and you could pay the Senate off and you could get audience before Caesar. You could get something pushed through. But if you were poor, basically, you know, you were just, you know, left to yourself. You know, basically in, in Paul's day, at different times you study Roman history, anywhere from one third to one half of the entire population were slaves. And this, this is what Paul is writing to, okay? So this is even different, you know, when I mean, you think about the degree of difficulty, we have it good compared to what was going on in the Roman Empire. And here's Paul exhorting the people, telling us that, you know, this is a command, this isn't a suggestion, okay? That we are to submit to the authorities. And again, I remember, you know, as you study through uh, Roman civilization there, um, there was a... a a demand, right, to say that Caesar was Lord when they would take a census, right, for taxation. That was the whole purpose of a, of a census was how many people can we tax? And then when they would come together and they would say, they would, as an act of worship, they would have a little bit of incense. And they would have an altar there and you would take a, a pinch of this incense and you would drop it on the altar and you were to say what? Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, guess what? Your name went in a book. You think cancel culture started just in recent years? No. It's been around, you know, forever. 
And, and the way they canceled you, I'll get to that in just a moment. But, you know, if you were good and you said Caesar is Lord, they gave you a little certificate. They actually signed off on something and said, you know, you're a good citizen of Rome. You know, you could put it up in your office or wherever. I don't know where you'd hang something like that. But, you know, but it was like, and, and yet what were they doing? They were marking you. Were you supportive or did you live in defiance of Rome? And so Paul is writing to a church in Rome that is, is fully cognizant of all these details here. And so as he does, you know, we're reminded that, you know, they tax them, you know, heavily. And I'll share that, you know, as we get further in the verses, or I think in verses 6 and 7. But uh, it's nothing like you and I have ever seen or experienced in our lifetime, even as bad as we would say, you know, taxation is. I mean, they got taxed for even for breathing, just for breathing. You, you were taxed. And then you think of Israel at this time. You know, Israel had been conquered by Rome. They were under the Roman, you know, government. Um, they were ruled by governors. You know, we see that, you know, throughout the New Testament there, you know, guys like Pontius Pilate, Felix, you know, Festus. And, 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 and they even gave them the opportunity. One of the nice things about Rome, you could say in that day, because they were so powerful, they weren't fearful of you. You know, if you rose up against Rome, you basically were going to die. So they allowed the Jews to even have, you know, usually when you, you think about this, when you conquered a land, one of the things that you would do is you would just integrate that people into your society, right? So they would lose their identity. But the Romans, they allowed, you know, the Jews to maintain their own identity. They got to have their own language. They got to have a king. He was under Roman authority, but they still had a king under themselves. And we know that in the New Testament, that was King who? Herod, right? Yeah. And, and Herod was a friend, obviously, of, of Rome. And so you recall when, you know, Jesus was born, remember, you know, then the Christmas story, we just read it. You know, what was Herod's response to the birth of, of Jesus? It was fear, right? He thought his position, you know, um, you know was, you know, in jeopardy. And so he, he called and he had that kind of power, that kind of authority. Even though he was under Rome, he had unilateral authority. What he said was, was the law. And he called for all of the male children in that region to be killed in trying to kill the Christ child. And, and, and you think this is, this is the authority, this is the government, like I said, that's in power, you know, in Jesus' day. So it kind of gives you a glimpse that what's going on in, in, in Rome. And so he says in verse 1, he says, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. You try to wrap your mind around that. That he's writing to those people in that time. He's going, and you need to submit to the government. And we go, man, we thought, you know, we had it bad. He says, for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So again, it, verse one begins with a bang, right? And so there's some questions that, you know, obviously the text asks and it answers as we go along here. The first question that comes up, what is our responsibility to government. What is our responsibility to government? There's no question here, okay? Paul's not going, you know, it's debatable. He says, it's what? If you're a note taker, I'd write this down. The word submit. It's a word that people have a hard time with. The word submit. And he says, everyone must submit to governing authorities. And, and, and I always love this. People sometimes will come to me and they'll say, well, Pastor, I, mean, I don't really hold to that, that because that verse is only in the Bible one time. I go, John 3.16 is only in the Bible one time too. I go, but you like that one, right? 
Oh, yeah. And I go, well, okay, in this one, it's also not in just verse 1, it's also in verse 5. It says, everyone must what? Submit, okay? So I think Paul's pretty clear on what he's calling us to. And that word there, again, if you study the language, it's an imperative, it's a command. You know, and you, you look at this, uh, the, the Greek word, uh, hupotezo, and it comes from two words. Hupo means under, and tezo means to line up. So if you put that together, means to line up under. That, that's, what, that's what Paul is saying there. That's what it is to submit. It was a military term you know, used to say to arrange troops in a formation under a leader. Okay, that gives you kind of a visual there. And in a non-military sense, you could say it was a, a voluntary attitude of cooperation where people just go, okay, we're going to do it. And it could even be translated to say to help to carry a burden. To help to carry a burden. So Paul is saying, you know, the basic role, you know, of the believer, the basic role of the Christian life, Christian citizens, is to help carry the burden of government by what? Submitting to it. Oh, I can't do that. And you go, then go back to Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you be a living side. You throw your, the only way you're going to do it is you throw yourself on the altar and you go, it's my reasonable act of worship. And, and it really isn't that difficult when you think about as this unwinds here. You know, we're not called to be rebellious as, as Christians. We're not called to be subversive to the government. Um, but just the very opposite of that. We're, we're called to be model citizens, to show people how to live. Jesus said, you're the light of the world, right? You're, you're the salt of the earth. So when Paul wrote this to the church, I mean, like I said, the church was already under suspicion. If you've studied Roman history at all, when the church began to meet, what, where did they meet? Where do we read in the book of Acts? Where did the church first begin to meet? In homes, yeah, from house to house. So they were meeting in private, right? That got the suspicion of the Roman government. They go, what are these people doing behind closed doors? They're not even doing this out in the open. And then they heard this thing about communion, that they, were, they thought they were cannibals, Right? That they were eating, you know, the, the body and the blood of Christ. You know, th there was all kinds of confusion. There was all kinds of speculation about the Christians in that day. And so Paul all the more is going, you know, all the more reason that we need to live out in the open. And we need to be the best possible model uh, of citizens that you can be because you are suspect to everybody. I mean, there's people today, even in our own city. What are those churches doing? Why do they meet there? Why do they go, you know, why don't they do it in a park? You know, why, why, are, why are they go behind closed doors? You know, I don't know what they do there. And you, you hear the things that people think that go on. And you go, I understand what Paul is saying here. Go the extra mile, just like Jesus said. They're not trusting him as, as sovereign king. But then look what Paul goes on in verse 1. He says, everyone must submit to governing authorities. And like I said, you go, Caesar Nero is in power in Rome. Now, this is the same Caesar who's what? Who's going to kill Paul. Who's going to call for him to be beheaded. And, and, and Paul is going, you know, uh, we need to submit to the governing authorities. And if you think about this, you know, even what would transpire in the days ahead. Most commentaries would say the book of Romans was written about 58 AD. And if you know history at all, there was something that took place in Rome in AD 64. The burning of Rome, right? And, and rumor, you know, history tells us that it was Caesar Nero who actually set fire to the city. He wanted to change the architecture. He wanted it to become more modern. So he lit the city on fire. 
Well, the people began to revolt against him. And so he needed a scapegoat. And so he determined to just say, well, you know what? It's those Christians. Those Christians let, they lit the city on fire. You know, the ones that meet in private that we don't even know what they're doing. They won't even, they won't even put incense on an altar and say, Caesar is Lord. They refuse. They refuse to recognize him as Lord. And so it, it must be them. And so what did people do? What gets reported in the news? People just go, huh, that's the truth. Don't question it. Next thing you know, this, I mean, you talk about waves of persecution. You've heard this story. I've shared it. I think John has shared it as well with regard to Caesar Nero, that in his craziness that, you know, he was a chariot racer and around the garden in, a, in, a, in his own palace that uh, he would, you know, ride at night. And obviously there was no streetlights in those days. So what they did, <coughs> excuse me, they took Christians and dipped them in pitch or in tar and put them on poles and lit them on fire as he drove around naked through his garden, you know, in a drunken, you know, debauchery. And you go, but that's what the church was, in a sense, was up against in Paul's day. And yet Paul is saying, submit to the governing authorities. You're going, wow. Is, there, is that a struggle? Is that hard? I mean, you think about as hard as we could say that is, it was much more difficult for them. People would be going, has Paul lost his mind? Everyone must submit to governing authorities. But then look what he says. He goes on, he says, for all authority in verse one comes from where? Where does it come from? It comes from God. That's what he's saying. And all, in all these positions of authority, they've been placed there by God. So the next question that naturally poses, where does government get its authority? From God. From God himself, that God is sovereign. God's in complete control. And he says that these, these positions of authority, they've received it from him. That God himself has placed them there. And so Paul starts with the sovereignty of God. He makes it clear, all government power has only one source. And that one source is God himself. And we have to come to that same understanding, that same conclusion. Otherwise, we're going to go crazy. All authority comes from God. Remember, you know, Jesus, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, before his crucifixion? Remember, Pilate says to him, he says, you know, do you not know that I have the power to release you? I have the power to crucify you. And what did Jesus say? He says, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Pilate, please let me. Is that what he said? You go, no. What did he, he looks at Pilate and he goes, you'd have no authority over me except for what? That it's been given to you from above. Did Jesus recognize where all authority and government comes from? Did, did he live in fear because of it? You go, no. He did what? He submitted himself to it, to the Father's will, even when it hurt, even when it cost him, because he understood the sovereignty of God. You know, people ask, you know, why do we have armies? It's a great question. You know, there's so much evil, you know, in this world, it can only be deterred by force. God establishes it. He places it there. And there's no such thing as a perfect government. Well, there is one but it's still yet to be, right? That perfect government is when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and establishes his throne there in Jerusalem and we are living in what? The millennial kingdom. Then it'll be perfect. Until then, no, we pray, you know, not my will, but thine be done. But we determine to live as our constitution declares as one nation under what? God. 
One nation under God. Verses 3 through 5 goes on. You know, again, you look at this and it says, For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid for they have power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. So why does the government exist? What is the purpose of government? You, know, you can answer that question you know, in verses 3 through 5. It's to protect and to punish. The purpose of government is to protect and to punish. That's one of the reasons people have such a problem with our current administration, that we have an open border you know, in our southern border, and we are just allowing a flood of people to come into this country. And so many people in all 50 states are feeling vulnerable to attack. You know, immigration isn't just a southern border problem. It's, it's a, it's, it has to do with our own sovereignty as a country. Uh, you know, to be a sovereign nation and not to control your border is a very dangerous thing. And so we won't even see the effects of that until the days ahead. We're, we're seeing a glimpse of it now, but it won't take effect until, you know, people get rooted, you know, into our society and are able to blend in. And then, you know, that's when, you know, all H-E-L double hockey stick breaks loose at that point. And so our, our number one goal, you know, role, you know, as our commander in chief is to protect our country, establish our borders and to punish those who, who break the law. I mean, one of the simplest ways that, you know, um, I pray with people during the week and they tell me like something like this, like um, you're driving down the road and you're exceeding the speed limit and you're exceeding the speed limit. And all of a sudden red lights show up behind you. What, what happens to you at that moment? Do you become fearful or joyful? Usually you become fearful, right? Even if you're going the speed limit, you know, people tell me, ah, he just, and you go, but, but what's the first thing you do when you see the red lights? What's the first thing you do? Slow down. Slow down? Yeah, step on the gas. Yeah. <laughs> Teach his own, you know. Well, no, usually you look down at the speedometer, right? And you want to determine, am I going over the speed limit? And if you're not going over the speed limit, what do you do? He must be after Pastor Mike, who just blew past me, right? You go, but if you're if you are speeding, usually, and like I said, I can't speak for myself, um, but I can. I pray with people. They go, I was over the speed limit, and I saw the policeman. And they go, and I was like, my heart stopped. They go, I became so fearful, and I go, well, you need to slow down. You know, I don't have any problem telling people that you, you need to slow down because if you slow down, I don't have to go so fast because then you know. You, it's a whole long story. Protect and to punish. That is what the government is there for. And so if you notice, you know, when Paul gives this word here, he's talking about, you know, government officials. And he uses this interesting when he speaks of government officials, he, he calls them a servant or in some of your translations, a minister, right? How many have minister in your translation? You know, that, that, that government servants are ministers, and you look at that, and, you know, so you think about this. Next time you get pulled over by a police officer, try this. Because it's, it's biblical. When he comes or she comes to your window, just say, uh, good morning, Reverend. How are you? And the Reverend, what do you, oh, my Bible says you're a minister. And I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, you know, so 
And then what would they probably tell you at that point? Well, being a Christian, you what? You should know the law and you should be an upstanding citizen. You should be going, you know, doing better than everybody else, right? And you go, but to think they're called servants, they're called ministers. That's what, you know, again, when you think about our government officials, you know, it's actually, you know, the, the Greek word that we find for deacon, you know, deaconess in the Greek language there, a word that means what? A servant. Our, our government, our governing authorities are called of God to be servants to and for the people. And this is a, an office, obviously, you know, divinely occupied, you know, by people. And so it's a terrible thing. You know, it's a shameful thing for me and for you, you know, when we have such a, a bad attitude towards government as believers. Now, I get it in the world, you know, but, but not as the church, not if we are Bible-believing Christians who have read the Bible. Maybe you're here today and you go, man, I feel terrible because I've never read this before, and I do accept it. And you go, great. For you, that's called what? That's repentance. That so you go, oh, I'm doing exactly what God would have me do. I'm not being squeezed in by the world, but I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind that I might prove out what God's perfect will is for my life. And that is to do what? That is to respect those that are in authority. You know, I can tell you this. I mean, you know, they were asking, I was watching the, the, the house vote last week and, and Jim Jordan was a guy that his name, and I, I like Jim Jordan and I like listening to him. And, and they said, you know, we want Jim Jordan to be the next speaker of the house. And Jim Jordan comes up and he goes, I don't want the job. <laughs> he goes, this is the last job I'd want. It's already hard enough just being a congressman. Can you imagine being the speaker of the house and all the targets, you know, that are, and, we, and so we kind of saw it, you know, unfold. But I get it. You know, being in government is, is really a thankless job, especially if you're in the IRS. You know, even the tax collectors in Jesus' day were hated. You know, and so, uh, you know, it's just one of those jobs that, that you know, uh, people on the outside look at that and they go, man, you know, it's, it's not a job, you know, that I would want. But, uh, you know, again, another question that comes up naturally from this, you know, how should we respond to government? Like I said, we've already looked at our basic responsibility, and that's to submit. But in verses 6 and 7, Paul takes it a step further than just submitting. Look what it says there. It says, pay your taxes, too, for the same reasons for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So you think about that. You know, taxes and government fees to those who collect them. Have you ever thought of the IRS as being a minister? You know, having that in, we have that same reverence, you know, we go, yeah, the IRS, they're, they're ministers, they're servants of God. And Paul is saying that our response, you know, to, to our government, you know, number one should be that we support them. You know, that, that's what we're paying our taxes for. Number two, that government itself should be respected. We're to honor to whom we honor and to fear those whom we fear. You know, and like I said, that, that's tough. That can be really tough for us. And so what does it demand that we do? It demands that we go back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we throw ourselves on the altar of God. And you go, God, for me to, to, to look at an IRS agent as a minister of the gospel, in the truest sense, when I say the gospel, I mean fulfilling God's purpose and his will, that it was God who placed them there, and to have that kind of respect. And you go, that's exactly what Paul is saying. 
So when you ask yourself, you go, do you have that kind of respect or honor for an IRS agent? And you go, no. And you go, well, what is Paul saying? He's going, you should. And it's not an option. It's not even a suggestion. He says it's a command to submit to God. It's an, an imperative that we do that. If, if, if you want to honor God with your life. If that's your goal to bring honor to God, then you would do what God would call you to do, right? Then you're not going to argue with God and go, God, I, I, you know, I'm a good Christian, but I'm just not going to do that. You wouldn't be a good Christian then because you'd be living in opposition to the gospel in the same way that those that are outside the gospel live in opposition to it. And so this is hard stuff. But again, understand who Paul was writing to when he was writing to them and what they were going through when Paul wrote to them. Far greater persecution and suffering and hardship than you and I have ever known in our life. So it wasn't like Paul was just, you know, out of tune or out of touch with, you know, culture or society. I think of, you know, um, you know, even in our own day, you know, we might not like, you know, who's in office or who's leading us, but we're called by God to honor them, to pray for them. Maybe not talk so much about them, but pray for them, you know. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says this, Therefore I exhort first all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So who's Paul saying that we should pray for? Leaders. The president, you know, the vice president, you know, the speaker of the house, Congress, Senate, and that our desire would be to live quiet, peaceable lives. Not rebelling, but to submit. What does it mean to submit? To come under, to align yourself under, to support the government. And you go, man, that's such a hard thing. When you think about you know, in Paul's day, think about the taxes that were levied. There was, it was called tax farming, meaning they farmed out the taxes of that day. So what they would do is they would sell the taxes of Judea to the highest bidder. So whoever, you know, won that, then they could go and then they could set whatever taxes they wanted. If they could pull it off, they were, they had to give a set amount that was agreed to to Rome. And then anything above that, they got to keep for themselves. So they just came up with different ways, you know, to tax people at that point. There was, like I said, the poll tax, you know, just for breathing, you know, seeing certain age of, between men and women, uh, just because of the fact that you were alive, you had to pay, a, it's a P-O-L-L tax. There was income tax. It was a flat rate of 10%. There was a road and there was a harbor tax. So if you use the roads, you got charged to use the roads. If you had a boat, you got charged to use the lakes or the oceans there. There was an import tax, bring something from outside the area. Guess what? You had to pay a tax on it. There was a fish tax. Wherever you threw your net, if it was in the ocean or if it was in a lake, you had to pay a tax. And then if that net caught anything, then they counted the fish individually and they taxed you on top of that. There was the cart tax. I've shared this with you before. If your cart had one wheel, you got taxed so much. If it had two wheels, and who got to pay the most? You know, the 18 wheelers, right? I mean, the more wheels you had on that cart, the more that you would pay. And so taxation was way heavier in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, than it is today. And what is Paul saying? Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. 
And yet, what did the people want in Jesus' day? They wanted, they didn't want a spiritual revolution, right? They weren't looking for a Messiah to save them from their sin. They were looking for a Messiah who would save them from what? From Rome. And when Jesus didn't meet that need in their life or their want to save them from Rome, then the people turned on him, remember? Yeah, the Jews wanted him dead. The Herodians wanted him dead. Yeah. Everybody who lived, you know, in that time frame wanted Jesus dead. They tried to trip him up. If you remember in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22, 15, it says, you'll find the story there. It says, and the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They wanted him killed. It says they sent him uh, some of their disciples along with supporters of Herod. And, and Herod, he was, like I said, he was a sympathizer to Rome. You know, the Pharisees, you know, they, they didn't want to pay taxes, you know, at all. And um, he says, you teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us, what do you think about this? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It says, but Jesus knew their motives, their, that they were evil. And he said, you hypocrites. He said, why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him the Roman coin, he asked them, whose picture and title are stamped on it? And Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God that which belongs to God. And his reply amazed them, it says, and they went away. And you think about that. You know, of all the things you know, that Jesus could respond to there, it's a great reminder for us. He said to render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And he goes, what was, on the, what was Caesar's stamp on? It was on a coin. He's going, give the money to Caesar. And he goes, but give to God the things which are God's. And what belongs to God? You. His image is stamped upon you and upon me. He's going, so we have to understand our priorities here. He goes, money, that's, that's a little thing. If you're making your life about money, remember what Jesus said? He goes, you cannot serve God and money. If money is what you're after, he goes, you will end up walking away from God. So Jesus was just putting it into perspective. You know, give, give to Caesar the things of Jim. He can, the money, you can't take it with you, right? But, but God has placed his stamp upon us. We were created in the image of God and God's desire is that we would what? That we would submit ourselves, that we would surrender ourselves ultimately to him. And that's really the question, you know, for all of us today. Have, have I done that? Have I submitted myself? Have I surrendered myself to God? And am I doing it? You know, as Paul said, you know, he, he's telling us here that, you know, a good Christian is also a good citizen. And not just because the law demands it, but he says, but for conscience sake. For a clear conscience, we obey the law. I go back to the driving. If you're driving and you know and you're looking down and you're watching the, the speedometer, you know, you can look out the front and you're just kind of driving along. If you're going really fast, you know, people tell me that they, you know, they had to look out the front and they're always looking behind them and there's tension and there, because there, there's what? There, there's a fear. Fear of what? I might get caught. And Paul's going, well, we don't just do it because it's the law. I do it for you because you can have a clear conscience that you can just be peaceable about it. I, I remember that joke about the IRS agent, you know, that uh, he, he receives this letter, anonymous letter in the mail. And it says, hey, I, I paid my taxes last year, but I shorted it, you know, by uh, a, an undetermined amount of money. And he said, so I wanted to, to give you $200, you know, this year, uh, you know, towards that. And he said, uh, you know, um, Last year, I just wasn't able to sleep at all. And uh, he said, knowing that I have this debt, and he said, so I'm going to you know, pay you $200. And he goes, and if I still can't sleep, he said, then I'll send you some more. 
And it's kind of how we approach, you know, having a clear conscience. It's not that, you know, we're all in. You go, just what do I got to do to have a, where I feel good, to, you know, and have a kind of a clear conscience there. And, and yet, you know, Paul is just reminding us that what we do, we don't just do because that's what the law requires. We do because it's good for our conscience to know that what you're doing, you're doing because God declares it in his word. And there's a peace then that surpasses even our own understanding that fills our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, last thing, you know, I, before we close, you know, people ask, you know, and it's a very important question. Is there ever a time, though, that believers, you know, have an obligation, you know, to disobey the government? Is there ever a time? And you go, yeah. You go, when? And, and I highlight this, you know, we submit to the government up to the point that when obeying the government means disobeying God. You obey the government up to the point that obeying the government would cause you to disobey God. Two things that just come to my mind, you know, my own thoughts and, you know, my own life. I think of um, same-sex marriage. You know, as a pastor, if someone comes to me, they go, hey, can you marry us, you know, as, as a homosexual, you know, male or you know, homosexual, you know, female? I go, no, I can't because Scripture says that marriage is between one man, biological man, and one biological woman, right? And I go, so to, to do that, I, I, would be, I would be disobeying God. It doesn't matter what the world says. I go, Could I go to jail for that? You know, probably eventually. And then the second is abortion. You know, you think about the issue of abortion, to, to take a life and to say that killing a baby is the mother's right. You go, no, not, not, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. It doesn't matter what people say the law says. And you go, so going against that, you go, and so th those are two things. There's so many more, you know, in, in our society. But you have to go, you know, as you study scripture and you go, um, if, if obeying whatever the government's telling me to do means that I have to disobey God, then I've got to draw the line there. And, and, that's, and those are just the things that you're going to have to pray through. Like I said, in your own life, there's all kinds of, you know, examples, you know, where, where civil disobedience, you know, has taken place. I think of, you know, Pharaoh uh, in the Old Testament, um, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Daniel, you know, not eating the delicacies there in the king's court, practicing civil disobedience, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to, you know, an image. Um, you know, think of Darius there, king in Babylon. You know, no one could pray, pray to, you know, God. And Daniel decides, you know, Daniel chapter 6, what does he do? He throws open the window so everybody can see it. And he's like, well, I don't care if you say I can't, you know, worship God. I'm going to pray to him anyway. And three times a day, Daniel kneeled down and he prayed. Civil disobedience. You go, why? Because men in all places ought to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubt. We, we pray. God calls us to do things. And when obeying the government causes us to disobey God, then we've got to stand up. That's what we do. And I, and I love that thought, you know, a Christian is to be a good Christian until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. A Christian is to be a good citizen until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. And that's, again, comes back to Romans chapter 12, doing what? 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. You will never submit to this government unless you believe that God is sovereign and that he's in control and that God has placed every single person who's in government has placed them there for his purpose. Until you do that, you will fight against it. You will argue against it, but you will be in sin against your God because his will for my life and your life is to submit to the governing authorities, knowing that every person, every government that's established is there by God. Promotion doesn't come from the East or from the West. It comes from God. And that will settle the issue then, because then you can do what God has called you to do. You don't have to like them, but you are called to pray for them. And we pray, and that's what we do. And that's how I want to close the service today. You know, Paul says, you know, that we, we should come to this place, like I said, and we should pray. He said, you know, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercession and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is the good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. The way I came to Jesus was understanding God's love for me. It wasn't his wrath. It wasn't that he was yelling at me. It wasn't that he told me I was worthless and I was an idiot and da 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 It says the kindness of God is what draws a man to repentance. You know, that you and I would be model citizens in 2023. As hard as it would be to our flesh, it's possible in our spirit by the power of God. Jesus himself, like I said, stood there right before Pilate and he said, you would have no authority unless it was given to you from above. And when you can recognize that, church, it's easy to rest. Because I go, do I have to understand it? No. Do I have to like it? No. But ultimately, will God be glorified in it? Yes. Yes. Let's pray. Father, we do pray today and thank you, Lord. Thank you so much that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that you're sovereign, that you're in complete control. And Lord, we, we do look to you. Um, God is our King and our God. We thank you, Lord, that when you came in your first coming, you didn't come to establish your kingdom. You came to save us. You came to pay the price that all men through you might be saved. But you are coming again one day in your second coming. You will establish your kingdom and your kingdom rule. And we can rest in that. But Lord, until that day, our focus isn't on trying to overthrow the government or change it in so many different ways as much. What's more important is that all men, Lord, would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that's our hope and that's our prayer. And so we pray for those that are in government. Oh, how different it would be if every man and every woman who served in our government loved you and and we practice a, a Christian Judeo ethic the way that our, our country was founded upon. Though imperfect uh, as much as it is, Lord, life would be so much better because our focus of our life would be to love you with all of our heart and our mind, our soul and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. I mean, we see, uh, Lord, in one sense how simple it could be, but how complex it's become. And so we pray for our leaders. We pray for their soul. We pray that, Lord, you would save them and that you would open their eyes to your truth and that, Lord, they would grow to love your word. And that that same thing would happen in all of our lives, that God, we would love your word 
And that, Lord, we would walk in it, that we'd be model citizens so that when people look at us, they go, oh, that, that's what it means to be a Christian. We're not the ones that are up there in the front line screaming and yelling at all of our politicians, but we're the ones that are on our knees praying for them, trusting you, Lord, standing up for truth. And when we're called to do something that stands in opposition to your, your word, we just refuse to do so. And not in rebellion, but with conviction to be able to say, I can't because my God calls me to this and be able to quote your word and to know your word and to know then just like those that have gone before us, to know that peace that even surpasses our understanding. May that peace fill every heart and mind, Lord, as we go forward from this place this year. Cause us to be, Lord, a humble people, a submitted people a gracious people, a thankful people, God. And we can only do that by your spirit working in us. And so, Lord, create in us, Lord, create in me today a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us that we might glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church,